Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard. Thank you for joining us. Today is part three of the China Files. Today's title, Kongbu Renmin Wang Chao, The People's Dynasty of Horror. Where we last left off in our tale, Chairman Mao had just passed away. It was the height of the Cultural Revolution. Purges were happening all over the party and all over the country. Millions of people were dying. The pressure was on that if you weren't considered a true Maoist, you could be killed, you'd be persecuted to the point where you might even want to commit suicide before they came for you and your family. In the midst of all of this, Chairman Mao himself, the great helmsman, passes away. His body is later put on display at the mausoleum. And a new leader emerges to become the paramount supreme leader of the party, supreme leader of China, even though he never takes the title himself officially. And that man is the minuscule Deng Xiaoping. Now, Deng Xiaoping, he had been around in the CCP from the early days. He was a member of that long march. He fought with the Red Army. But one thing that was different between Deng Xiaoping and Mao as there were many th differences between Deng Xiaoping and Mao, was that Deng Xiaoping had had foreign experiences as a young man. Chairman Mao only ever left China once that we know of in order to go to Moscow to attend a meeting with Joseph Stalin in the 1940s. Deng Xiaoping, on the other hand, had spent time overseas. Deng Xiaoping, in his very early years, had an opportunity to travel to France as an overseas worker. In fact, many Chinese traveled overseas as workers in the late 1800s, of course, famously building the railroad in the United States, out, uh, the Transcontinental Railroad. And then in other chances, he had, he worked in France. And so at 16 years old, Deng Xiaoping traveled steerage class on a working ship to France as an overseas worker, where he worked in a steel factory, an iron factory. He was given a job as a fitter and actually years later, during the Cultural Revolution, when he himself was purged by Mao and by the party, he was sent to a factory. This is 50 years later. He's sent to a factory to work yet again as a fitter. And it turns out that he still knew the trade. He was still a master of the craft. So Deng Xiaoping has this European background. He studied in France for a little bit, at least in middle school that we know of. And then he then comes in. He's one of the people that during the Great Leap Forward, the party looked to, and he had risen through the ranks, and they looked to him to establish some kind of economic reform, to find some kind of way to peel back from the hardline communism and hardline commune policies of Chairman Mao that led to the mass starvation. So Deng Xiaoping began injecting market reforms and introducing market reforms, both after the Great Leap Forward. And then later, when Mao died and Deng Xiaoping became really his successor, that's when he introduced a new policy into China. He called it Gaige Kaifang, reform and opening up. And essentially what he did, now keep in mind, this is after the meeting with Nixon, after the meeting with Kissinger, Zhou Enlai is still around. He's one of the premiers of China. But Deng Xiaoping starts opening China to the West. And he allows specifically foreign direct investment to come into China realizing that communism has been a failure in terms of economics, but then not wanting to lose power with the, over the entire country from a political perspective. 
And so we knew he had to say something about Chairman Mao. And there's a famous saying from Deng Xiaoping. Uh, he's a famous for being a pragmatist. And one of his famous sayings about Chairman Mao, and they asked him, was, was Mao good? Was Mao bad? Of course, he knew that he had to acknowledge the failures of Chairman Mao, but he also had to find a way to maintain Chairman Mao's standing as the leader of China, the, the leader of the CCP, really the initial, not maybe if, if not formal founder, but you know certainly the, the original main leader. And so Deng Xiaoping comes up with a statement of saying, Mao was seven parts good, three parts bad. And that's still essentially the official narrative from the party when it goes to Chairman Mao. And then when Mao had passed away and Deng started introducing these, these market reforms into China, he said, they asked him about this once and they said, you know, isn't this, isn't this a form of capitalism? Isn't this the, the opposite of communism? What are you doing? And uh, later on, this, this system is, is known as socialism with Chinese characteristics, uh, and Deng responds, it doesn't matter if a cat is white or black. It only matters if the cat catches mice. And so again, the same type of pragmatism that you would see as opposed to the ideological dogmatism of Chairman Mao, whereas Deng Xiaoping wanted China to become richer, wanted the party to become more powerful. But here's the difference. Here's the difference between him and, say, a Khrushchev. Here's the difference between him and a Gorbachev, was that Deng never wanted the party to lose power. And so as this, the country and as the CCP opened up more and reformed more, the 1970s rolled into the 1980s. And, that, and throughout the 1980s, remember, the USSR at this point is beginning to crack. The communist bloc is beginning to open. Thaws are happening between first, obviously, between the CCP and the United States, but then also between the Warsaw nations. Berlin Wall, more and more protests all throughout the 1980s. Reagan becomes president. Reagan and Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, they're fighting. They're going behind the Berlin Wall. Pope John Paul II goes to Poland, holds massive rallies. Worldwide communism is beginning to fall. And the power of communism over these areas is beginning to weaken. All of this comes to a head. And at the same time, Deng Xiaoping, he's out there preaching reform, opening up, reform, reform, reform. Well, students and youth throughout China start hearing this and they say, we don't just want economic reform. We want political reform. We want social reform. We want the freedoms that we've seen in the West. We want the freedoms that we've seen in the United States. We want the freedoms that are being denied to us. And this sparks off a movement as well. And in fact, some party leaders of the CCP back this new movement of political reform. One of those leaders ends up passing away. And a funeral is held for him in a place called Tiananmen Square in April of 1989. And the students flooded the square. They stayed there for months. And when we come back, I'll tell you what happened next. So it's April 1989. There's massive movement for social change across all of China, every major city. 
and one party leader in particular, not Deng Xiaoping, but a pretty high leader named Hu Yaobang, is championing these reforms. But Deng Xiaoping and the hardliners, the long marchers, they don't want this. They don't want any social reform. They don't want any reform at all like this because they want the party to always be the unchallenged head of all of China. So Hu Yaobang is forced to resign, but not long after his forced resignation, he suffers a heart attack and dies. Many of his supporters, many of the students, wonder, could he have been killed? Could something have happened to him? Like something happened to Lin Biao? What's really going on? So those students flood, not just Tiananmen Square, but Shanghai, Chongqing, hundreds of thousands in Hong Kong, all over China. Remember, Hong Kong, by the way, had not been under Chinese rule at this time, not under the CCP rule at this time. It was still under British rule. Hong Kong never went communist. Hong Kong was always a British enclave, the same way that Taiwan never became communist because it was always under the nationalists after 1949. So you have to remember this. Hong Kong and Taiwan always stayed outside of communist China till later on with Hong Kong. So here we are. The students don't leave Tiananmen Square. The protests get bigger and bigger. They go on for weeks. The weeks turn to months. Now it's June and it's still going on. And everybody remembers what happened. June 4th, 1989, the tanks rolled in full view of Western cameras because Deng Xiaoping and the leaders of the CCP saw a potential for a new civil war and a new revolution on their hands. And they themselves knew as revolutionaries what would happen if they allowed that movement to get off the ground. And so instead of giving it space, they crushed it and they killed thousands of students, workers, and everyone else in that square of the gate of heavenly peace, which is what Tiananmen means. The same gate where Chairman Mao, just 40 years before, exactly 40 years before, had commemorated the founding of the People's Republic of China. But in fact, at this point, their People's Republic had just become a new dynasty a sort of red dynasty, one that was not willing to relinquish power to anyone. Now, an interesting story about all of this, Premier Zhao Ziyang. So CCP Premier Zhao Ziyang at this point actually became a supporter of the students, went down into the protest himself as a high-ranking member of the party, and showed support to them, showed respect, listened to them. And for this, Zhao Ziyang was purged, of course, in the midst of these protests. However, because of his background, because of who he was, because of his leal service to the CCP in the past, and he, because he had so many internal supporters, he was put on house arrest. He was not executed. Zhao Ziyang spent the rest of his life recording 30 audio tapes 
that were then smuggled out of his house between 1999 and 2000. He actually had children's cassette tapes for his kids on, a, on an old audio player. And he would record over them with a little battery-operated radio that he had at his house. And the CCP guards never noticed what he was doing in there. What was he actually doing? He was secretly recording his memoirs. He was secretly recording what actually happened inside the CCP just prior to Tiananmen Square, as well as his take on everything that had gone on prior to it. He said in, in terms of that, I refused to become the general secretary who mobilized the military to crack down on students. In the final chapter of the book, which was later released in 2009 to commemorate the 20th anniversary of Tiananmen Square, Zhao Ziyang praised the Western system of parliamentary democracy and said that it is the only way that China could solve its problems of corruption and a growing gap between the rich and the poor. On Tiananmen Square, he said, by insisting on my view of the student demonstrations and refusing to accept the decision to crack down with force, I knew what the consequences would be and what the treatment I would receive. I knew that if I persistently upheld my view, I would be ultimately compelled to step down. On the night of June 3rd, when sitting in the courtyard with my family, I heard intense gunfire. A tragedy to shock the world had not been averted. And what was happening after all? That's one of the only acknowledgements that's ever come out of a high-ranking CCP official actually admitting that the Tiananmen Square massacre did take place. And he had to smuggle it out through his kids, his grandkids, cassette tapes. On Deng Xiaoping, he wrote, Deng has always stood out among the party elders as one who emphasized the means of dictatorship. He often reminded people of its usefulness. And so people need to understand that when you look at Deng Xiaoping, when you look at these years of reform and opening up in China, that doesn't mean they were willing to relinquish power. Far from it. Because this still was the CCP. Now, the difference between Tiananmen Square and what happened with the Berlin Wall and what happened in Moscow was that in Moscow, the soldiers refused to fire on their own citizens, on their own people. The People's Liberation Army, which is what the Red Army had become to be, uh, to be known as, they brought in units from outside Beijing. They told them that the whole thing was a Western plot and that they were there to take down China and that the only way to save China was to destroy the students and destroy the movement where it stood. And that's exactly what they did. But that image of the tank man that did come out, cover Time magazine, that led protesters and gave them hope. And it sent hope behind the Berlin Wall to East Germany, to Poland, to Russia, all over the communist world. And it was following the events of Tiananmen Square that communism itself fell across the entire globe. So after Tiananmen Square, the bloody cobblestone streets, communism is withering and dying across the world. But that's not what happens in China. No, not at all. 
because just one month after the Tiananmen Square massacre, the president of the United States at the time, George H.W. Bush, sends his national security advisor, General Scowcroft, on a secret mission to China. Now, George H.W. Bush, prior to becoming president, had been the CIA director. But prior to that, he had also been America's special envoy to China. It's true. And he'd always had big plans for China. He saw what was going on in the 1970s, and he looked at it through the lens of business and realized, why knock over the Chinese Communist Party when you could make them make a deal? Because the United States and the Western system, the Western world, could have destroyed the CCP at that instant. They had no power. We could have cut off trade. We could have done everything that we did to Russia when they invaded Ukraine and China would have been finished, or at least the CCP would have been finished. They've been done for. But no. Because what George H.W. Bush and his successor Bill Clinton did throughout the 1990s was to form a new deal with the CCP, a secret pact. The CCP would continue opening up and they'd be, they would continue to be the leaders of China and the West would support them the same way the West had supported the USSR in its early days and helped to industrialize the nation. The West would continue to industrialize China through their finances, through foreign direct investment, and in exchange, they would provide slave labor. In exchange, Western firms would be allowed to supply the capital, supply the intellectual property, but the goods that would be made would be made for slave wages and sent all around the world. This was the birth of a system that today we call globalism. Globalism was born from the bloody cobblestones of Tiananmen Square. This is what the United States elites did as a response here. Now, there were a few things that the CCP asked for in return, one of which was tough. And, they, and it wasn't directly to Washington that they asked for this. It was to London. Because remember before I was talking about Hong Kong, that massive, powerful, sprawling metropolis. It's actually a series of islands at the mouth of the Pearl River. The British had started, it had been nothing before the British came, but Deng Xiaoping wanted it back. He said, if we're gonna get this thing done, if we're gonna get this whole deal done, we want it back. And they had already been in negotiations even before Tiananmen Square for this to happen. Deng Xiaoping said, we want to continue the negotiations, we want it back. And there were people who even said at the time that because Hong Kong had stayed capitalist throughout its entire existence, had never gone communist, that perhaps if Hong Kong were introduced, reintroduced to China, they, they called it one country, two systems, under the one country, two systems model, that all of China 
would open up, that China would become democratic and capitalist and everything would be free. When in fact, it was the exact opposite that happened. The West handed over Hong Kong, which the West had built. And where are we now? Hong Kong has been subjugated. Hong Kong's freedoms have been stolen. People trampled in the streets. Protesters disappeared. And the CCP has taken complete control and reneged on every single deal they made with the West. Because understand, when they make a deal with the West, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Because the CCP doesn't see Westerners as people. They see them as lesser. They see them as merely a means to an end. And the CCP teaches that the hundred years between the Opium War of 1949 to the founding, excuse me, the Opium War of 1849, all the way up to the founding of the People's Republic in 1949, that was called the Century of Humiliation. And that is why now, when the CCP has their targets set on 2049, they want the following century to be the century of CCP ascendance. Not just in China, but around the entire world. And so Deng Xiaoping passes away in February of 97, doesn't actually get to see it. But on July 1st, 1997, the British flag goes down on Hong Kong. And the CCP's flag goes up. A CCP garrison is then formed and stood up of the People's Liberation Army, right down in Admiralty in central Hong Kong. The Chinese Navy begins patrolling the waters. They take sovereignty of Hong Kong. And then their eyes turn towards Taiwan. And they say they want that back too, even though it had never been part of the CCP. It had never been part of CCP control. But this was the deal. The deal was the West and Western elites wanted to continue to maintain their slave wages and these deals so that cheap TVs, big screens could be sent over. Manufacturing would be outsourced to China. Who cares what happens to Detroit? Who cares what happens to the Midwest? Who cares what happens to the South? We're all going to make rich. And sure, we'll, make the, we'll let the CCP, we'll make them rich as well. doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, that's all we care about. is selling products to gullible, stupid Westerners with their consumer mindsets. And so the CCP, in a sense, abandons communism, at least in terms of economic principles. But they maintain power. And they came up with a new strategy. And the new strategy would be to join with the West to build a global empire. But then once the West had built it, the CCP would take over. And just such a man with that ambition and vision in mind came and took over the CCP in the 2000s. We'll talk about him tomorrow. His name? is Xi Jinping.